0: support for a round with steve and cole comes from infinium spirits a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import sales and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands infinium spirits igniting brands welcome back faithful listeners i'm Stevie Mata. i'm t cole newton and coming to you pre-recorded for my mid-city bar 12 mile limit it's time for a round with steve and cole Hey everybody, this is T. Cole Newton. Thanks for joining us again. We're coming to you as always, as stated, pre-recorded from the new patio here at 12 Mile Limit, which is super fancy. Uh, We've got a roof over section of it, so even if it rains a little bit on us today, we'll stay dry. We've got some great guests. Uh, Steve Yamata here is going to introduce them to you, and then hey, we'll get right hey into y'all.
1: it. How's it going? Steve Yamata here. I'm not a guest on this show. I'm one of your hosts. You're stuck with me one way or another. It's great to be back. Um, let's just go ahead and jump into it. So uh, our guests today are two people who I've known for a good deal of time. Um, they're responsible for giving me a really great opportunity in this industry, uh, which I'll always be grateful for. And uh, we're, I'd, I'd like to consider that we're good friends at this point, too. Uh, we've had many epic journeys to the West Bank for dim sum, um, um, which is pretty dim sum, as well as Beef Jerky Emporium, too, which I really wish I knew the name of that Beef Jerky Emporium. i will probably link it to this episode. But if you haven't been over to the Hong Kong Market Shopping Center and been to the Beef Jerky store they have there, then you're really missing out on one of the true treasures of New Orleans.
2: Anyways, let's go ahead and jump <laughs> into it. Let's uh, have our first guest introduce himself. Uh, Jeff Berry, alias Beach Bum Berry, um, proprietor with Mrs. Bum of Latitude 29 in the French Quarter. Awesome. And our other guest?
3: I'm Anine Kay, otherwise known as uh, Mrs. Bum.
1: (laughs) Perfect. All right. Um, Coolio, so why don't we just jump into it real quickly. So uh, a big portion of our show, and you guys are listeners of our show as well, which is fantastic, um, is that we like to frame a lot of the conversations that we have here about New Orleans. So let's go and jump back into the past. Uh, What were your individual first experiences with the city of New Orleans?
3: Oh, well, mine was... uh, I couldn't get here. So my parents would never bring me when they came, and they went down every couple of years, and they kept saying, you're not old enough. And then I was 21, and I still wasn't old enough, so I knew that that was all a farce. And I was going to move down here a couple of times before that, and it's actually... a regret that I didn't. I would have liked to have like had this be a city that I came back to Mm -hmm. at a certain point. But as it is, we uh, arrived for Tales of the Cocktail in...
2: Yeah, it was uh, August of 2005, and neither of us had been to the city. We were living in Los Angeles, and we were both trying to figure out where to move to from Los Angeles. And nothing was really calling to us. I mean, nothing in the US was really saying, you need to move to here we stepped off the airport shuttle into the French Quarter on Royal Street. It's like, where the hell has this place been all our lives? I mean, it was like Barcelona or some <laughs> um, old European city, and there were Juilliard-trained musicians playing for change on the streets, and everywhere we went, everybody was cool, and strangers on the streets said hello, and um, it was amazing. And in, in the course of three days, total strangers there except for our friend Kevin Allman, who was the one who got us into the Tales thing in 2005, back when they couldn't get anybody to go, and it was a very small event. Oh, how uh, times have changed. Yeah, yes. what year
0: was that for Tails? That's, I mean, I Tails think, is, what, 12, 13 years old I now? I think it so. was the
2: second or maybe third at the most. Um, but, it was, yeah, it was when uh, Southern Comfort was still the only sponsor. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, through Kevin, we had a job offer. I was going to have a writing job at Wear Magazine, and in no time had a place to live lined up. And we, we came back to L.A., ready to pack our bags we were really stoked and then we just turned on the TV and it was like oh look we're having a little weather down there uh, (laughs) Katrina Katrina happened like a week after Tails pretty much and that kept us away from here for uh, a little while we just couldn't get it together to come down yeah, it wasn't.
3: But, the, it wasn't an appropriate time. It was a, if we had been first responders or young people who could go build things or you know
2: or doctors or, or ready
3: yeah. to or if, if we'd been ready to open a restaurant and give people jobs that would have been one thing. But so we were just going to be down here flapping around uselessly, right. getting in the way. <laughs> I'll tell so, you, uh,
1: flapping around uselessly <laughs> at that time was a whole lot of fun. There was uh, curfews and um, that was about it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I've heard a lot of stories of people who were here during those, those first few months even. I mean, I moved here about a year after the storm, and it still felt very fresh, like it had just happened. But it was, there weren't curfews. There weren't as many uh, military police roving around in Humvees. There, uh, the city was, it, at least the parts of it that were in higher ground that didn't flood, uh, felt very vibrant and very alive so I don't know how long how long did it take you guys to eventually get here permanently because oh, that man. was I remember that was at took, least 2011 12
2: took another 7 years we came yeah. down in 012 in 07 we moved from LA to Asheville North Carolina spent a few years there and it was a great place you know up in the mountains uh, sort of like what Austin is to Texas or New Orleans is to Louisiana you know it's like a little blue dot in a sea of red and mm-hmm. nice cool people and like uh, uh, but um, we always meant to come down here. I mean, it was, that was just sort of the pit stop. And how did
0: how did Asheville? What, what decision making process led to Asheville? I've been to Asheville; it's lovely. But research, ah. yeah,
3: yeah. It was uh, it was a combination of things. Jeff was doing a lot of work in Europe at that point. He was going places all the time. He was his, his seminars had sort of taken off, and was going to New York, going to Florida, going to Washington D.C. Than overseas, There's three international airports within a couple of hours' drive from Asheville. And you can drive to New York in one day. People don't realize that. It's a really? horrible day. It's not it's not <laughs> a <laughs> good like a day. I have done it more than once, though, driven us up there Fair in, enough. like, 14, 17 hours Oof. or whatever. Um, and that's unbelievable because you can take all these gigs that, you know, otherwise you would have to worry about, you know... Air flight, connections and all these logistics and everything. It just gave it gave us another way to get from point A to point B. Yeah,
1: that's an interesting. So I grew up in North Carolina, for anybody who doesn't know that. Um, and I didn't spend a ton of time in Nashville, but it always was uh, f- growing up in a very liberal minded set. It was always kind of the thing. It's like, oh, well, we could move to Asheville. Like me and my, <laughs> you know, friends at the time we were just like, OK, if we had to stay in North Carolina, where could we go? But um, it seems like there's a narrative that happens with a lot of these smaller, kind of cool, very liberal, surrounded by very conservative area towns that uh, there's a development that happens. Like the secret gets out eventually and the entire landscape really tends to change. Um, did you see that while you were in Nashville? Because I definitely have heard recently in the last couple of years, it's really starting to snowball. Like downtown's kind of starting to turn into what San Antonio's a lot like now, like where their river walk area.
2: You could kind of see By the time we were leaving in, in 012, you could see more development. Um, there was actually a big New Orleans developer that was trying to put a huge shopping mall downtown in those old 19th century buildings, and they fought him off. But, um, but yeah, stuff like that was starting to happen. You started to see chain stores. You started to see more, you know, restaurants geared towards some of the retirees who were moving there from New York. in yeah. yeah. Black Mountain was turning into this... You know, like rich people's retirement area, as opposed to like a bohemian uh, arts enclave. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's really tough. Did was there ever so at that point to uh, in time to? And correct me if you're wrong. Still, the goal was to use the knowledge and research and your resources as well, and need to start our own business to open up what would become Latitude Twenty Nine. Is that correct? Well,
3: that was, I mean, that was another thing. Again, you know, New Orleans was 10 hours away. Mm-hmm. That's an easy day's drive, you know. <laughs> so we we were able to come down here a lot. Mm. Uh, it just really, it was great. We could really just sort of fit it into our schedule. We could didn't just come for... T- tails we could be here during other times when it's the it's its real self you know so
2: yeah and every year i mean every year at tails and and when we came down between tailses um <laughs> our circle grew and we met more people and um, it just was where the love was we just knew that this was going to be the place you mm-hmm. know that, that when we if and when we opened a place it was going to be here right. you know, it, was, it was like sort of no-brainer territory.
3: people did talk to us about opening something in Asheville um but you don't open cocktail bars in Nashville you open craft beer places in Nashville yeah. it's it's a it's is a very specific market mm-hmm. there's something that people are coming there for a certain vibe and we watched a couple of places try to fight it but it, it just it was not a natural fit for a lot of the employees and mm-hmm. They weren't. I wasn't sure who their audience was supposed to be.
1: Yeah, it's a little scary with that too, with the craft beer scene in in North Carolina, which is huge, which really can kind of has taken up all the room in the drinking culture in North Carolina. Uh, at Asheville, Sierra Nevada built their giant, like, new brewery outpost, brew pub there as well. So you get out of the airport at Asheville, and, like, Sierra Nevada's right there. Huh. And then Oscar Blues is in Brevard, North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, too, which is a smaller oh, yeah. brewery. But, you know, when you have two giant breweries, like, like, where is that line from microbrewery to, like, macro brewery? Like, who really knows? I mean, great for the success for all of them, but then as well, too, like, where is that microbrewery scene? Like, you know, that people really fell in love with that really kind of, like, pushed this that point. Portion of the industry to a certain
0: extent. Was there something about Asheville or North Carolina that lent itself? Was there like a tax credit system? What 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 attracted? Because there's the the endemic homegrown sort of the small guys that became bigger, but something like Oscar Blues moving there from Colorado or Sierra Nevada setting up shop there remotely from California. What made it North Carolina specifically attractive to those companies? Do you know
1: offhand? Well. North Carolina was offering at the time before the... not to get too political on this, I guess, <laughs> Please. uh, once they passed the, that restroom legislation, a lot of this has really stopped in North Carolina. They've lost millions and billions of dollars worth of industry. Cause a lot of industries don't want to go there anymore. I think Google was looking to go there. Amazon was looking to go there. And now none of them want to go there anymore because it is such a political quagmire in the state. But at the time, there's really two things that push the craft beer movement. Um, and I'm only peripherally aware of this because I was underage at the time when it happened, but North Carolina has extremely strict liquor laws. Um, Not as bad as South Carolina was at the time, but liquor is highly regulated. It's a control state; you can only purchase through the state-run ABC stores that are there. Um, But you can purchase beer and wine in grocery stores or designated real uh, sellers of both beer and wine. Uh, So, at some point when I was a kid, they passed; um, they took away the limits to high gravity beer. And once that happened, like, just the floodgates opened up. I mean, just imagine, like, when you've got, like, a all that disposable income who's looking to invest in drinking and going out and having a good time, and, like, alcohol is so much more expensive, then, like, you know, the beer is less expensive, and you've got access to so many more beers at that point. And that's kind of like what really Man, spurred I, the market I just
2: got a little PTSD when you mentioned control state. <laughs> it's like we would go to the liquor stores it's like where is everything there's nothing here we would, we would drive how long two hours to the Georgia border mm. three yep. hours and right across the border, that have these big, giant Oz-like liquor stores with everything you needed, <laughs> and uh, they knew that we people were coming there for that reason. Oh yeah. Um, also, every trip to South Carolina that just we took where my truck. family yeah. mm-hmm. is—it
3: was just the whole car was full of booze. But it was so weird. <laughs> you,
2: go, you go into the liquor store, the control, the state liquor store, and okay, you can get hard liquor. You cannot get beer there. You can't buy bitters there. You have to go three different places if you want these things. If you want, okay, for your base spirit, you've got to go to the ABC store. If you want bitters, you got to go to a, a grocery store that has them. And um, if you want to chase your drink with a beer, I think you have to go somewhere else.
1: <laughs> like, so after all this hard work, I'd use a cold beer. It's you're, like, you're it's really... a Sunday, too bad. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah,
3: That was a real flashback. I mean, the thing, the thing though, is that when you're trying to analyze anything about what happened in a town like Asheville. And this is a much more prevalent thing. I feel like in, in this decade, um, Asheville's chamber of commerce built Asheville into what it has become. Mm. I mean, they, there was a wall where you could not go 10 minutes without seeing a mention of it about great place to retire, great quality of life, you know, and absolutely true. It's a beautiful place. It was very inexpensive, we were leaving Los Angeles and we didn't have jobs. We, we had to live on the money we had, you know, so that was great. I mean, we had a 2,000 square foot house for over just over $1,000. There,
1: (laughs) yeah, just considering whether you you guys were just out looking for a new apartment in in New Orleans, and that's kind of a kick in the teeth. You're like, How much for (laughs) how much did you
3: have
2: to remind me about that?
3: Yeah, (laughs) oh my god. Well, there's a great place out in Kenner that has a conversation pit, but it's three thousand dollars a month. (laughs) I
1: I mean, there's a bunch of great uh mid century modern properties around Lakefront, I mean, they're really great, but. You know, just got away from the rot to, buy to the them. point where... Like, yeah. Exactly. It's like, okay, well, now this is a full of mold, but I can renovate it. It's still like... Great bones, figures. Steve. That's good, what they say. Bones, great yeah.
3: bones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, it was, really a t- it was really a city that was pushed by its own, you know, propaganda machine mm-hmm. and into being sold to people. And it's sort of like once we got there, it was like, huh well, this is nice. It's not the way they described it <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, which is like why it, it's so great to move to New Orleans after that, which like is always better than how people describe it. Mm. Um, cool. Well, yeah. I think that brings us
1: pretty much up to speed with moving to New Orleans. <laughs> so uh, we met people, social circle was growing, sick of Asheville, just sick and tired of Asheville, <laughs> ready to get on out of there and move further south. Uh, So what was that process like?
2: Like I said, we'd made some friends down here, so we had a base of operations. We uh, stayed with Wayne Curtis, um, world-famous cocktail writer. Um, (laughs) Wait a second.
3: We're skipping over something, though. Are we? Uh, There's always a book. Wow. Okay, every time we have to move, there's always a book that Jeff is working on, because there's pretty much always a book that Jeff is working on. It's a Three to five year process So when we tried to move here from LA Like when we were going to relocate to the south He was working on a book And that's why we didn't move for two years mm-hmm.
1: Which book was that? That
3: How one
2: would have made? been Sipping Safari Oh yeah. Awesome. yeah yeah.
3: And finally I just said I'm sorry You know We have to move
0: <laughs> Okay, <laughs> So you it. moved before the book was done Even yes. though that was the reason you hadn't
3: Yeah it just It got to a point where We were never going to get out of there so
0: then you started writing another book didn't finish and moved to New Orleans to finish is that, yes. that is was correct. that potions that was potions potions yeah. of the Caribbean for those Which who may forever. not be in there
1: the award winning potions of the Caribbean
3: <laughs> oh yeah. Ooh, thank you yeah, of <laughs> <laughs> that's what this podcast is for
1: right?
2: <laughs> gloating Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm great. <laughs> I thought it was for schadenfreude. <laughs> did, I didn't
0: prepare it's, properly. Did somebody? Did something bad happen to somebody you don't like? Because we could talk about that, too. Always,
3: oh, yay. It's always happening. Pretty much every day. Yeah.
0: But
1: uh, so you were in the midst of working on Potions of the Caribbean.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which was like a real book, not just a recipe book. It had text and it had um, a structure and a narrative. and it was hard. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I mean, the moved.
1: subject material in and of itself is the hard researching that and going through like, yeah, I don't know this the I don't know the rape of the Caribbean pretty much, all by that stuff, colonialism yeah. and it
2: required some focus and some actual work. So it was kind of hard to um, uproot and relocate during mm. all that um so
3: but it was managed and we moved into Wayne's house uh state we were staying in the front apartment he has there and i started looking at the you know just classified whatever where they had it i guess we had Craig Lewis then um and it looked like it was that time to go out and find a place to live really quickly because I, everybody kept telling me the city goes through waves of when you can find a place and when you can't, so I went out and found us a place to live pretty fast. Cool. And uh, we got to live near the French Quarter. Yeah, you all were right in the Marigny Triangle at that yes. point. Yes, mm-hmm. and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful introduction to the city to be able to do all those things that we wanted to do, like walk and, you know, go places and stumble home right. at three o'clock in the Y'all morning. Y'all really
1: had access to that area of town as well, like in... The last couple of years before Airbnb completely has Absolutely. devastated that area.
3: And that's why we we are not there now.
1: Yeah. You started seeing it coming in, too, if I'm not mistaken, as yep. well,
2: right? Living over there? It's one of the reasons that sort of sped the plow for us to move to a different part of the city is that when we first moved there i would go outside in the morning and people would say hello and you know everybody was really friendly and and then there was a certain point at which i would go outside and i'd say hello to people and they'd look at me like what do you do what do you want from me and it was like i don't carry any cash on me yeah Yeah. it's like they were all airbnb people and the entire block turned into like basically an outdoor hotel at this point and just didn't feel like a neighborhood at all it just felt really weird and alienating Mm -hmm. and um It was one of the reasons we split from that part of town. It was,
3: yeah, and it was, again, you know, when we moved in there, it was reasonably safe, but nobody was living there full-time anymore, so people were getting, that's, you know, we're getting held up all of a sudden, and it was, you know, we're coming home from the restaurant by then at, you
2: know, some ungodly hour,
3: (laughs) Not exactly, you know, the right combination of
2: things. Yeah, and all the fun. Airbnbers would not lock their gate or, or ah, you know.
3: Yeah, because it's safe, because cause it looks pretty. <laughs>
1: we got one, got one key, right? So it's like, oh, well,
0: we can't all have that key, so let's just leave all the doors unlocked. Right. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, so around – how long did it take you? I remember there being some, some ups and downs on the path to having your own spot. What were some of the the concepts that you ran through? Because you, you had to fit your concepts <laughs> to the location in Absolutely. a way. Absolutely so Absolutely. as you as, <laughs> b- before you wound up and how we much can, time do we have on this show <laughs> plenty uh, before you wound up settling in in the Bienville House Hotel in the French Quarter which is a very it, being a hotel restaurant and bar is a very specific kind of enterprise and being in the French Quarter is a very specific location what were some of the other locations that you looked at that got close to maybe being a thing and the concepts that you would have put in those spaces
2: well the original concept was more of a t- Tiki twelve mile limit. It was like we wanted to be a neighborhood bar um, for locals to go to. We wanted to be a neighborhood tiki bar, mm-hmm. um, and we looked in neighborhoods. We didn't even consider the French Quarter. We didn't really want to be dealing with um, you know heavy tourist traffic and and all the attendant hassles of that whole scene. And um, man, we looked everywhere. We looked mid city. We looked um, up in uh, River Bend. Looked in Bywater.
3: Um, there for the last. You know, three years or so since we opened, there has not been an opening anywhere where I did not look at that building. Yeah, hmm. I mean, I went, to, I went everywhere. I went to places that they've given up on trying to turn them into restaurants. I'd go further point. I'd
1: say fifty percent of those places opened and closed within the time uh, yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, so,
3: yeah, it was. There was a lot of. Uh, I mean, it was in that just that period where there was a frenzied scramble for real estate, mm-hmm. and people were just. Ready to help you jam something anywhere, you know.
0: That's what she said. <laughs> Keeping it classy here on around with Steven Cole.
1: That's your co-host. It's too
0: easy, Cole Newton.
2: Yeah, we were looking at places that didn't even have a kitchen. We would have had to build a kitchen. And <laughs> well,
3: I mean, you know, I mean, but the thing is, too, is like the food. You know, at that point, the one place that we pursued really strongly at a certain point, which ended up being a total disaster. At the negotiations totally crumbled at some point because we found out that the building had no plumbing or electricity that really like they had no infrastructure Yeah, it didn't it. have
1: it, they had <laughs> put in a uh, they wanted to sell the place as a restaurant space uh, they built this really expensive parking lot in there but in order to become compliant with the city you would have had to dig up the parking lot to put in a uh, grease trap a
3: grease trap the like, size of a Volkswagen
1: yeah so it would have just like <laughs> why did you do this and then they Ah, this this building. Oh my gosh, it's like <laughs> not to get too dire on this, but like you know, I, I was involved in this process. Like it's kind of funny. Like Jeff and Anine had reached out to me to help uh, with opening uh, what would become Latitude Twenty Nine, and uh, I would always get to the point where it's like this could be a serious thing. I think Anine looked at like twenty places, and then she'd be like, "Hey, what do you think of this place?" And I would see one out of the twenty places, um, and this was the one place that it's like there was a lot of. Interesting potential with it, but we would have all just had like a suicide pact by like midway to opening. It just would have been bad. Like, we yeah, would have been I mean, funny. Like, it just... I wasn't
3: even talking about what I knew, which mm-hmm. is that, like, okay, there's no room for, uh, you know, we'd already like talked to Chris about coming in with us, but we're not going to be able to serve any cooked food here. Right. We're going to have a kitchen like cure yeah. because I'm not putting a freaking grease trap, mm-hmm. you know, in this parking lot. I'm not doing this. And then they started talking about ramps, and I'm like, you know, handicapped ramps and they wanted a special kind of ramp that cost yeah. more money than any other ramp and it had to be it was just it was insane yeah. we would
2: have been the first tiki bar with white walls and white plastic chairs and no oh, decor because yeah. we would have run out of money <laughs> they, they did a
3: historical <laughs> renovation so they plastered the walls mm-hmm. so we weren't allowed to and I kept saying well we want to put things on those you know why did you do that uh if you just put up drywall, it would have been fine. Right. It's like, oh well, the tax credits, and it's like, but wait, when you've saved as much money as you spent, <laughs> but, the, uh, yeah, it just it was nuts. All the
1: wiring was wired as residential as well, too, which would have all oh. had to be stripped and changed to commercial. It wasn't even well.
3: good residential; it still yeah. had knob um, and tube. But we were willing
2: to we were willing to go for it, just because it was still. Um, a place. You know? And it was,
3: it was, a it could have been a very charming spot and very special. And that was always the thing. Like, you know, do you want to go into a warehouse or do you want to find some place that is like this beautiful, you know? Because we were offered South Market. Mm hmm and that was a huge no yeah uh, but we didn't have the right kind of business for that right you know so
1: yeah and it and, would have all been glass windows in the front too which like uh, you've seen a lot of like tiki bars yep. have tried to open up now in like strip malls like there was one in charlotte that tried opening up that was in a strip mall that if you just have glass walls like in the front it's just you can't create a really successful tiki vibe right if you don't have the right not at all like yeah. building and the right space for it
3: we looked at the space that belize is in Mm -hmm. Um, That was a big... That was an instant no as soon as we went in there. That was so... I mean, you needed really seriously deep pockets to deal with that. What was the...
0: What was there? It was a ditch route? Yes. Something like that? Yeah, I think I used to... That was a spot that I would wind up at after after I guess with Hornets games at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was the only time I've ever been to what the ditch, I think they called it. <laughs> it. But it seemed like a normal bar. What was the what the was stairs?
3: Stairs. And the kitchen.
0: The kitchen space too. Like
3: it's It was minuscule. Yeah. Amazing uh. what they've
1: been able to do with um Belize over there. But yeah. just the insurance that you'd have to have to be serving like a full scale, like especially tiki uh. drinks upstairs. And then like it was just this old very scary staircase. It's just like just imagine the first person to fall down that it's like okay there goes everything
3: yeah and it was uh i was very lucky to have a very good insurance agent uh who i would call and say we're looking at this and he would just say no don't (laughs) like and he would just throw out a number ten thousand dollars more a year Mm -hmm. for the stuff you're talking about right now this that the other like even the porch at one of those places where we're all like, oh, there's this great porch. And he's like, no, somebody will fall off of it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So you have to like have a larger radius of insurance. I don't know. I-, I just trusted him and listened to him, yeah. which is good because, you know, we all know what insurance payments are like.
2: Yeah, we yeah. were ready to almost ready to give up. I thought maybe we got here too late. And then um, the space at the Bienville House kind of fell into our laps, courtesy of... Uh, I mean, Ann Twinnerman told us about yep. it, and um, Neil Bodenheimer also separately told us about it. Mm-hmm. And we reluctantly went over there because, as I said, we weren't interested in being a quarter bar, but we loved the people we talked to, and the space was great. It had a fully... Completely kitted out kitchen. Had a real
3: kitchen. It had a real a kitchen. kitchen, and
2: um, you know we could focus on making the front of the house look good. And um, well, we did replace almost every piece of equipment in the slowly kitchen. Right. But it was
3: it was we could we, we worked on it piece by piece. Is so. it the yeah. same kitchen if you change one part of time <laughs> I don't <laughs> know <laughs> <that> philosophical question.
2: <laughs> it didn't hurt as bad. The, yeah, the pain so. was spread out over a few. Uh, yeah, miles. at least
3: we were making money at that point.
2: <laughs> yeah, but it was. But you know, Paul Gusting's uh, over at Two Jacks. Uh, told us you need to be a French Quarter Bar you need to be in the French Quarter and we, it, for two years he told us that and I just kept blowing him up going yeah nah, nah, nah. And, and he was right actually he was absolutely right I mean that's how we got great press everybody stays in the Quarter travel riders stay in the Quarter drink riders stay in the Quarter
3: and this is pre-Uber so and that really changed right. the city yeah. a lot I mean I it, we just we were ready to fit in wherever we could find a place it was really the point is that, that this is a city that's full of charming neighborhoods wonderful places to do business just it's an embarrassment of riches really in terms of population and the demographic you're dealing with you have a lot of people who are really invested in going out and we were ready to you know fold the concept because tiki's very flexible
2: mm-hmm.
3: I mean it, there's a lot of different things you can do with it as evidenced yeah. by all these bars out there now and, and so. what,
2: what happened was we went for a hotel bar Tiki yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That was fine. Yeah. Yeah. And the people at the Bienville House are, you know, it's owned by the Monteleone. It's a family-owned business. It's not like dealing with a corporation. And they stay out of our, you know, way, pretty much. They're very good at not.
2: Yeah. And now we're carrying on the grand tradition of tiki bars and hotels. The Trader Vic's was always in Hilton's, and uh, the Contiki chain was always in um, Sheraton. Mm -hmm. Uh, Marriott had uh, another one, the Konakai. You know, so it was all it was a th- it was a thing for many years Yeah.
1: right. So we're taking over the uh the carousel bar at some point, right? We'll just <laughs> turn that <laughs> into a tiki bar It'd be really awesome, I that think. That would
3: be so cool.
1: <laughs> that would make everybody in the city really angry. Too, yes, I they think. would <laughs> come and
2: burn it down. <laughs> it's plenty of, have a plenty lot of, of tinder to catch on. Lots fire.
3: yes, lots of combustible
2: materials. <laughs> would they burn us down with tiki torches? Have you guys th- hop, thought about hopping
0: on the uh, like the taking back the torch? Uh, Movements. <laughs> well, the,
2: the, actually, the owner of the Tiki Tours company just jumped right on it. Yeah, I mean, he was. Yeah. Um, he sort of did that for all of us. Uh, they fell on their uh, on their sword for it. Um, so, but the, it was so ridiculous anyway. I mean, they they all looked so silly. I mean, look if you want, if you want to hold a neo-Nazi rally, just soak your rags and pitch like a good Bavarian villager would,
0: you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, t- yeah, torch-wielding Germans are an institution. Yeah. They're really, I mean, yeah. Preppies
2: with, preppies with tiki torches it doesn't quite have the same menacing effect. It just doesn't. Yeah, you know. there is
0: also something about the uniform that they've decided to adopt, the the yeah. polo shirt and khaki. Yeah, they, I mean, they all look like they just got hired at a Best Buy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I that's that's terrif- my problem with Nazis. I think it's terrifying. I've always
1: found t- polo shirts and khaki Khaki's pretty terrifying. Really? I worked at Target too, so I mean. Oh. It was pretty bad. You ever walk into a Target wearing a red shirt and khakis? Never. <laughs> yeah.
3: No, hot. but
0: I have walked into places. I, I had a. Uh, when well, my first year here, I was in, in City here doing AmeriCorps, and our uniform was a white polo shirt with a logo on it. It didn't matter what the logo was, and khakis. And I could walk into any business. And people would ask me where things were, <laughs> or just any, like, just assume I work everywhere. You
1: just go
3: in the back room and help yourself to snacks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that was the perk. It's so, like, you know, if you walk around with enough confidence, they're going to assume you're like a regional manager or something, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, just act like you own the place,
1: and eventually you will. <laughs> well, that's great advice for here at 12 my life. <laughs> I'm Cole Newton. I own this place. Blah, blah, blah. Ah, that's such a good me. That's pretty good. That's what you sound like in my head. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's about time for our uh, new segment here on season two of Around with Stephen Cole. We're going to jump behind the bar real quick and uh, feature a drink from our fantastic sponsors over at Infinium Spirits. So uh, Cole's going to be doing that for us. I week.
0: will do a cocktail for you. It's gonna. It's called the Mantis. It's a. a it's a Mai Tai riff by way of a grasshopper. So uh, bear with us for a second. We'll be back with some drinks. Cool.
1: All right, y'all, we're about to jump behind the bar again with our second ever segment of Making Drinks here on Around with Stephen Cole. Uh, and this week, we're going to have my esteemed co-host jump behind there to uh, make us a fantastic drink. Cole, why don't you go ahead and tell us what's going on in this drink
0: to this week? Hey, that's me. I'm Cole. I'm making a drink this week on my podcast. Uh, we call it Around with Stephen Cole, and we're actually going to start having a round for our guest with Stephen Cole. Isn't that neat? Um, anyhow... <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was neat. Uh, we're going to do a tiki-style drink. It's called the Mantis. This was a crowdsourced name drink. We used to have a feature at the bar where I'd put up an unnamed cocktail on the board and invite people to uh, to suggest names. Most of them were dumb. Most people would just suggest their own names. Uh, but this one came from a friend, Richard, who suggested the Mantis. It's sort of a minty cocktail, not unlike a grasshopper, except for way more intense, kind of like a mantis relative to a grasshopper. we want to do a tiki drink today for our tiki guests, and uh, let's get started. It's a bit of, like I said, it's a bit of a Mai Tai variation, so we're going to start with... Three-quarter ounce of fresh lime juice. We're going to add to that a half ounce of Bob's Original Orgeat Syrup. No offense to our our, uh, our guests today who have their own fine gourmet Orgeat Syrup, but we're not really a gourmet bar here at 12 Mile Limit. We're using bargain basement brands, and they work just as well. <laughs> so that's a half ounce of Orgeat. Then we're going to split it up. We've got a whole ounce of Branca Menta, the mint flavor tomorrow from our benevolent sponsors over at uh, Fratelli Branca, one of the fine, fine products in the house of Inspi- Infinium Spirits. And then after that ounce of Branca Menta, we're going to add a full ounce of Rum Agricole Blanc. We're using Nissan Blanc, but I've done this drink before with Clement Cane Blue. It works well with uh, pretty much any any uh, uh, Rum Agricole Blanc that I've tried. We've got that. We're going to toss a little ice into our shaker, give it a little give it a little shaky-poo here. Cool.
1: Now, with this drink, I think what's really great about this one is that it's a pretty approachable drink for most people, um, but it also uses an ingredient that most people typically wouldn't
0: drink. Um, was that kind of the intent? Yeah, not necessarily the intent, but a lot of what we do at 12 Mile is sort of creating these gateway cocktail experience. Now that looks good. Thank you. Um, it is good. Uh, so what you do is like you have these, these flavors, like almond flavors and mint flavors and some of the, the grassy notes from the rum. And... You're combining them in a way that's very approachable, but also sophisticated and with enough complexity for a cocktail enthusiast, but approachable enough for a cocktail amateur. And that's sort of the sweet spot here at 12 Mile Limit with our drink making. Cool. So here we have a mantis. Uh, I'm going to bring these out to our guests and we'll get back at you with part two. Right on. Let's do it. All right. Welcome back. We've got our cocktails in front of us now. You guys are enjoying?
1: Yes. yes.
0: It's, uh, yeah, we, we just went over this in the break, but just to, just to refresh, we've got uh, Branca Menta which is one of our benevolent sponsor brands. We've got some agricole Rum Agricole Blanc. We've got a little bit of Orgeat Syrup. I use Bob's brand Orgeat Syrup. It's a local New Orleans
2: institution. You know, there's another local Orgeat Syrup you could have used, but... uh. Is it it $4 a quart? (laughs) No. (laughs)
0: That that is why I'm a Bob's loyalist. Um, and, And lime juice. Point taken. Um, but yeah, called it the uh, the mantis, uh, because it's like a grasshopper, but it would also consume a grasshopper hole if it could catch one. Uh, <laughs> that's my rationale right. I actually saw when I was a kid in my neighbor's garden, uh, they they like yelled or I was like, cool, go, 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 go see this." And there was a, a praying mantis had caught a bumblebee, and it was holding it by either end like it was like like corn on the cob holders and it was eating it around <laughs> the middle and was, oh, so the head man. was intact and the, the stinger was intact and it was just eating the, the middle of the just bee just
2: the good parts
0: yeah. yeah just the good bits are yeah, you a no, serial
1: no. killer? I, I, <laughs> didn't I didn't
2: want eat the
3: to know just, I the <laughs> story that, that was
1: you, cool that comes up
2: Like the thorax like, is the best I'm going to spend like
3: an hour googling that <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to watch an episode of Space Ghost with Zorak on it <laughs> <laughs> super
3: solid are All you right. watching Rick
1: and Morty? Are you guys watching Rick and Morty? No.
2: I've got it queued up. I haven't checked yeah. it out yet.
1: Y'all should watch Rick and Morty. I, think, I, I, think it, uh, I
0: haven't seen any of the third season yet, but good. it's. I've heard of good things. Yeah. That is getting really dark, but even deeper than it. Both darker and deeper for a show that was already very dark and very deep. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's good. Okay, yeah, cool. It's, it's, no spoilers.
0: <laughs> I hear there's a truth tortoise. Is that? there? Well, I mean, yeah, a little bit. A little bit of truth tortoise? It was a little
1: truth tortoise. Is it a half-truth tortoise? No, no, it was full truth. It just was <laughs> not featured very long in the, <laughs> okay. in, the in, in the last episode.
0: All right. I came out uh, after making this drink. We were And uh, y'all were chatting a little bit about a, I don't want to say embarrassing incident, but another time where, where, Jeffy, where you were on a radio show and comparing and contrasting. And it made me wonder, I mean, you are within the bar community the closest thing that we have to a celebrity so you get to travel a lot you get to do a lot people recognize you people have tattoos of you I mean there, there's a point where you gotta you can't even pretend that you're not
3: I bar have, famous I have been
1: in <laughs> rooms with uh, Jeff the Beach Bumberry when young bartenders have come up and just broken down crying like, <laughs> like, like I, I I've, I've met people who like refuse to go up to him because they just don't think they're good enough to like the total Wayne's world and like, they're I'm totally not right about that <laughs> 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 like, they are not what? worth it. Don't touch
0: me, please. <laughs> that, that's
1: an important point that you should pick up from this radio show. Uh, don't approach Jeff Beach from Yeah, he's really worth... mean and hates to talk. I was going to say, people. he's
0: really a
2: dick about it. Anything <laughs> you have to say, you can say to my Majordomo, Stephen Yamato. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> what? <laughs>
2: He will decide if it is worth. Repeating. So, or Brad Smith at this point too, right? Yes.
1: Oh, and <laughs> he a, seems
0: like a hard person to approach. <laughs> I would be more scared to initiate a conversation with Brad, who is currently the head bartender at Two Twenty Nine. Brad Smith is about. a marshmallow. <laughs> he is, he's a
1: pussycat. cat. Yeah, he's 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 got a prickly outside, but man, he is he is just he's just so cute. He's uh, his wife <laughs> made him a birthday cake that he shared with the restaurant yesterday. That was uh uh, it was cream cheese peanut butter icing and just like. Peanut butter cups on the outside and it was a chocolate cake on the inside, and you could see how happy he was. He was just so happy to ha- to share
0: his cake with everybody,
1: <laughs> and it was delicious
0: cake. That sounds like an amazing cake. It was really good. Okay, but yeah, Mike, I, I guess. Well, do you have any interesting stories from the road uh, as a as a world traveling cocktail celebrity that you think might be interesting? Like really, like worst interview or strangest place that you've had to set up shop. What, what's what's something. Wild and crazy That our listeners Might be intrigued From the From the exciting Travels of a Traveling barman
2: Oh man Moscow um, Moscow and We went to Moscow Yeah Yeah Whenever possible Anine comes with me I mean it, it doesn't You know You can always ask um, can, we, can I get another Plane ticket For my quote unquote Assistant <laughs> <You> know, and, <laughs> um, and every so often It happens And Anine gets to go With me Which is always cool um, But uh, Moscow was Moscow was challenging the Moscow bar show, the first time we went, was very challenging. First getting the visa was a story in itself. Which what we year was this? This is 2012. Yeah, right yeah, after right. we got
3: here, we ended up going to Italy and Russia. Yeah. Still, you know, I mean, it but was amazing. Having
2: said all that, the, when we went to the bars in Moscow, there were some amazing bars. This yeah. place called Chenaya Tea Room and Cocktails and another one called Delicatessen, which were fantastic, world-class bars. My favorite one, um, there was a tiki bar in Moscow. Mm. A really good one. I mean, it was really decked out. It was called the Aloha Bar. Uh, Dima Sokolov, I believe, was the owner. And um, they had two amazing eight-foot tikis guarding the inside of the door. And they looked just like tikis from uh, Steve Crane's old Kontiki Tiki, a place that used to be in the Sheraton. And I said, Dima, these are amazing. Where did you, you get these? And he told me this long story about how he tried forever to get a carver to carve tikis for him but none of them would do it because all the wood carvers they all carve Russian orthodox uh, religious icons and they can't carve a pagan image Mm. it's Mm. totally verboten (laughs) that's the wrong word to use in Russia but but, uh, but he finally found a guy who was willing to do it only if Dima drove him like 60 miles into the woods where he would carve in the middle of the forest where nobody from his congregation could see him do it and that's how they got their tikis oh my god yeah.
1: it's like so you meet a weird artist guy and he's like alright I'm gonna bring all my sharp tools now take me to the middle of the woods and I'll carve your idols <laughs> yes, that's, that's, the, that's the
3: Toby
2: Hooper version
1: yeah. <laughs> rest in peace Toby Hooper uh, yes. uh,
3: it's just that it's, a, it's that wonderful thing of, again of you know how much you know you guys both know this How much problem-solving we do in this business. Mm -hmm. And then you're thrown into a place where you can't even imagine the problems. Like that in Russia, it would be that to drive three miles, it takes an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. And so that everywhere you're going, you're always going to be late. You might not be able to get picked up from where you are. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Moscow
2: your, traffic was. If you dropped Houston on top of Los Angeles, you would have an approximation of what Moscow. It was. In,
3: like. I, I saw a guy parked in a lane washing his van with a bucket and a mop <laughs> <Just> <laughs> um, on the freeway. Was on the freeway, he was in a freeway lane. A good place and to it, do it. It was just if you missed an exit, which we had the pleasure of doing once. <laughs> uh, there was. That was another half an hour, forty five mm. minutes just to get back to where you were going. So
0: Was there a big audience for tiki culture in, in Russia? I can see it being kind of like the this idyllic
3: worlds <laughs> on the like, oh, my
0: god, like, oh my god. It's, they're, uh,
3: it's warm. <laughs> they're so hungry over there. They're really hungry for knowledge and it's like as a people, like they have amazing an amazing education. Like really, you know, some of the most amazing people I've ever met come from their You know Who's who's like Oh yeah of course What you don't speak Five languages What's wrong with you You know
2: Yeah if you really Really want to feel stupid Yeah Just go to a country Like that and talk To anybody who can I mean, I, can't, I can barely speak English, and they've got six languages under their belt. I'm American.
1: Like, I'm not self-aware about these <laughs> things. I'm just going to keep speaking American slower and louder until they understand <laughs> what I need.
2: But the, thing, the other thing about going to um, European or South American uh, countries and talking about tiki for people is that they don't have preconceptions the mm-hmm. way that Americans have and do. Um, I mean, because during the dark ages of the cocktail in the U.S., you know, the 80s and 90s when everything went totally into the crapper, um, Tiki fell harder than most. And if you are, a, you know, if you came of bartending age in the early aughts and you had any exposure to Tiki drinks at all, odds are they were like syrupy, slushy, cruise ship style drinks and the last thing you'd ever want to serve in a craft cocktail bar. But you don't have that preconception in London or Moscow or Berlin they don't they just consider it just a a legitimate part of the cocktail canon so in a way I mean when I was speaking over there they were more receptive the audience was much more receptive I was getting bookings in Europe um, and Latin America and Canada before, nobody in the U.S. wanted to hear what I had to say. You know,
0: they, when, they what would, was the tipping point there? When did when did tiki become acceptable again? I know you were you were a big part of that, but <laughs> when do part. you think <laughs> that it really took hold?
2: Um, it was probably maybe around 2012 um, in the states when when um, craft cocktail tiki bars just started spreading virally. Um, when you know, this floodgates kind of just like opened up I mean there were a few isolated places around the country that were doing it and doing it right Um, but now I mean there are craft cocktail tiki bars everywhere like Tulsa, Oklahoma um, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio Cincinnati, Ohio Spokane, Washington I mean every place it's almost like the way it was in the 50s and 60s when every town had at least one tiki place
0: what do you think is the next uh, cocktail trend like sort of obsolete model of a bar to come back I, I feel like I. I, th- I
3: what should, do you think? I'd look, I'd be I think there's to a couple. Like,
0: I, I, I can't remember who I was talking about that wanted to open a fern bar. I think it was um, one one of the Kirko guys, Kirk. Nick probably. Been talking about oh, for years. maybe Nick. Yeah. yeah, somebody somebody over here, Kirko, is talking about bringing back the fern bar, which I think would be a lot of fun. I mean, fun. wasn't? Um, gosh, what was the bar that Golden Cadillac?
1: Golden Cadillac yeah. was that, and it did not do well. Okay. I mean, it got yep. all the awards and everything like that, but also like, where did those awards?
3: Really I feel go like from? A, a lot of the it, it's the fern bar thing is kind of the same as tiki has become for a lot of people. Everybody has a tiki night now and then, you know, you see more and more about people assimilating the drinks from that time period, Mm. if not the atmosphere, um, into something. But we actually, also, that was another, you know, Another way that we could go into the whole thing—it's mm-hmm. uh, much better than doing colonialism, which <laughs> some people we know have done sure. and completely unself-aware about it yeah. and not thinking about it because it wasn't being discussed at that time. Huh. And then later on, it became a problem for them yeah. because you know you have. Well, there's a lot of people our age that have to do a lot of self-education. You know, in the process of. Learning to think differently about things that we grew up thinking about in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So you know, have you? I mean, there are bars in the in
0: the Tiki Canon who have been have forced to not forced necessarily, but who have changed things about their identity because uh, I'm trying to think of it. I can't really think think about about that one place that closed down. Maybe maybe it is that one place. (laughs) I think there's
1: a larger conversation goes with that as well. A place that like turn around that could easily turn into an Irish bar that was part of a chain of restaurants as well, too. It's like, I don't know what the decor was, but I'm having a feeling that they had
0: a much wider breadth of being able to be an offensive theme than anything else. Do you ever get any pushback though? I, mean, not that I can't think of anything specific about Latitude Twenty Nine that would be offensive, but the whole tiki milieu people see as a form of cultural appropriation sometimes, and I know that it's not Uh-oh. necessarily. But there, I mean, I'm just curious if that's been an issue, or how you, if you're prepared to to field those those complaints when they come up.
3: That we let me let me just say this first. <laughs> we actually, because it's such a complicated. Discussion to have. It's not something that we generally address. Um, we try to be uh, we try to be careful about and thoughtful about what we do. Okay, and
2: you know, well, there's there was an interesting panel discussion which only eight people showed up for, <laughs> but it was true. a very interesting discussion at uh, Tiki Oasis this year in San Diego, the big Tiki festival that's uh, been going on for years now. Um, you know, most people were there to have fun, have some drinks, listen to some music, buy some aloha shirts and, and tees. But on Sunday, um, Otto the, and Doe, the couple that run it, did this panel about cultural appropriation. Um, what should you know? What What should we, you know, let's talk about it. Let's not just pretend it doesn't exist. And it was very interesting. I mean, uh, the takeaway for me was, yeah all culture is appropriation. I mean, you don't have culture without appropriation. Every culture borrows from other cultures. That's how cultures evolve. The problem, the the term should be cultural misappropriation. Um, And that's what that tiki bar you're talking about that was like an Irish bar or or whatever, yeah, that was cultural misappropriation. That was big, toothy, grinning, um, you know, uh, uh, misrepresentation of Polynesian gods Mm -hmm. and just like really tacky... um,
3: well, it's treating it tech. as a treating it as a as a interchangeable theme. We could be this, or we could be that, or we could be.
2: Yeah, know. I mean, when you go to a place, I mean, you can tell right away when you go into a tiki place and somebody who put it together loves the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. If you love the aesthetic, you don't think of it as tacky or camp or kitsch. You think of it as a genuine. Um, uh, genuine form of artistic expression that you like unironically yeah. Uh, the way you would like any other form of artistic expression I mean for me that's just the kind of world I want to live in that's the kind of um, style I have in my own house you know and um, it's not something i just grafted on to cash in on something that's happening you know trending this week or whatever um,
0: I've never I'm not of the, of the four people on this podcast right now I guarantee you I know the least about tiki culture and history Um, But my impression is that Tiki sort of grew out of Americans returning from the Pacific theater in World War II to a certain extent. And so it was a way for people to bring something back with them that they enjoyed from this, what was probably a very harrowing and traumatizing experience. And they they could take aspects of that and make something beautiful from it. And it was a way to sort of take an ownership of that experience in a way. And I think that nowadays... So that's it's a very different thing, but that's, that's not current anymore. You know, that, 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 that relationship with the Pacific that people had an, in that era was very specific to that era. So um, I think you can play homage to that maybe, but not necessarily be able to represent it in the same way that they did at the time.
2: Well, one of the reasons that the trend lasted 40 years, and by the way, the returning vets from World War II was the second phase of a popularity. It had already been a strong trend for 10 years prior to World War II. Okay. Um, and World War II was just sort of like the shot in the arm that kept the trend going for another 10 years. Um, and then Hawaii becoming a state was a third shot in the arm and you got another few years out of that. I and mean, there was always something that was helping Tiki along. Um, but really what it is is the idea of an island paradise is perennial. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that grew out of World War II. That's, that's always been... Um, a perennial um, thing for people is like, oh, yes, being on an island paradise that's a fantasy escape is a little yeah that, and that, that, so
0: much of the the yeah. Mediterranean mythology is based around that so the ancient Greek and Roman stories that are that so much of a modern society is built on is about island paradises
2: yeah so so there's there's always been that um, and the returning GI is interestingly enough, I mean, you kind of hit on one reason why Tiki did get huge after 1945, which is that no matter how horrible a time you had on Iwo Jima or Okinawa or up in the air or in a submarine or whatever in the Pacific, before you went home, you stopped at the transshipment center in Hawaii. Um, so you you got to Hawaii before you shipped out, and if you were lucky enough to ship back home again, you were back in Hawaii again, waiting for your you know plane home or your boat home. And Hawaii was... Something that was completely out of reach uh, for just about everybody who was in the military and fought over there. Remember, you came out of the depression. I mean, World War World War Two happened in the last stages of the depression, and nobody had any money, and nobody traveled. Um, If they were lucky enough to have a job, they didn't have enough money to travel, certainly not enough money to go to the South Pacific, which was something that only extremely rich people did on cruise ships, and they took their own cars with them and their own servants and all that. But all of a sudden, people who, you know, men and women who never would have left um, Wisconsin or Tennessee or, um, you know, New Hampshire or wherever it is they grew up the farthest they might travel on a vacation is the nearest lake you know um all of a sudden they were going to hawaii and experiencing something that would have been completely abstract and remote to them uh and when they came back yeah they wanted to keep that vibe going uh and that's really what put tiki into the second phase of its full flower when you had places opening that weren't just you know bars or restaurants they were like palaces, you know, 300, 400 seats, uh, indoor waterfalls and lagoons and jungle vines and, and all that, where they were trying to actually recreate You know, this. Uh, is that the next step for, is that Latitude 30? No. <laughs> well, we, we no. do have a water feature. It, it is the pool at the Greenville House, which you can from, from table uh, 202 you can see it.
3: <laughs> and there was a, you know, I mean, you're, you're talking about a time, too, where people would come back from these epic adventures and you have to remember the lack of the ability to record your experience. Hmm. There's very few photographs that you're going to have. You have a couple of like treasured photographs that you took. That's it. Nothing, probably nothing moving, nothing, you know, no way to reproduce that or rerun that in your head. So, I mean, recreating that somewhere else was people's only way to really... Ex, you know, experience that yeah.
2: again. Yeah, now you just look at your cell phone pictures. Right. <laughs> yeah. We needed you know, a little mini vacation. Everything's shrinking in aspect too. It's like you, know,
1: you used to take panoramas of these beautiful scenes you see. Now it's like you take a picture of like the ladybug crawling on your fingers like nature's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag blessed, I guess. I <laughs> Always uh, to, to address that too, um like just the tail end what you're talking about, Cole, uh is that the natural evolution of latitude 29 or like any kind of tiki bar absolutely not i mean the realism of being able to open a giant venue at this point like they used to be able to open up and you know create these these experiences i think that's an impossibility i mean pictures of the maikai in fort lauderdale uh, that's that's uh, it's a protective national uh, protected national monument at this point too or yeah
2: national register of historic places yeah
1: because uh e- if you see pictures of the Maikai in Fort Lauderdale when it was first built, it was in the middle of nowhere. It was, like, you know, land that nobody wanted. Now it's in the middle of car dealerships and giant, like, I mean, it is literally prime real estate for all of these businesses and things like that. I mean, the land is much more po- much more valuable, I'm sure, than, I mean, monetarily more valuable than, than what that place is at this point. And that, that's the last standing of the giant tiki, like, restaurant venues and things like that. Um,
3: It's also, you know, there's also the reality that we all know, because we watch this happening around us, about what is the reality of running a place that size. Mm -hmm. Like, how many people do you really need to come through a place? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all seen very large places here that have gone through periods where they're hurting because there's just not, Mm -hmm. you know, you just can't, it's... A smaller place is. It seems to be working out that smaller places are a little more built for the modern.
0: Yeah, when I mean, everything's sort of niche and and sort yeah. of razor focused and very, uh, for for us for for example, we're we're a small place, but we we have very much a neighborhood spot. Yeah. So we can we can sustain a lot of our business just people in the area. Yeah. So that that kind of appeal. To circle around, I mean, you were asking earlier what's the trend of
1: bars and restaurants coming up, and I it's a scary prospect, but I honestly think that these pop-ups and temporary like concepts are kind of the future of what we're looking at as mm-hmm. far as like the forefront of of dining culture looks like um, we look at restaurants like next up in Chicago. That's that's kind of the forefront of what that is. Really, the five year cycle on restaurants and bars is kind of the real forefront of that, where you don't see places that can last more than five years. Now you've got places that they'll buy the space, and then it's just like okay, every couple of years we'll change the concept, and that's turning into every couple of months. And now it's like even smaller than that. We look up at uh, New York right now; they just had that big run of Game of Thrones bars that was extremely popular. That's transitioning to a halloween theme bar now we know uh you know our friends over at cocktail kingdom with their uh, miracle bars during the christmas time and then um uh, santa Sippin' surf shack which happens at latitude 29 as well yes one and, of the yes pioneers indeed. of the surf shack as well um you know that's that's a great boom for you know your business as well in december um, which isn't isn't yeah. the slowest time of year but it's like you know it does oh well it, you
3: know i mean it, it i'll say this you know it's a little bit it, it is an expensive thing to run, mm-hmm. you know. I think uh, I don't remember how much money I invested in it last year. I kind of can't beautiful think about too. it. Did Thank you make you. it in coal? <laughs> for,
0: the, for the Santa? No, I did not uh, You virtually. miss out on
1: everything. Well, there's cool. going to be
3: even more gold decorations so cool. this year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll I, make a
0: point.
1: It,
3: it was uh, it was really fun. People really enjoyed it. But what I really found that uh, I loved it because the customers loved it, and also because they were just looking for something. That was new, newer Christmas, you mm-hmm. know, not just mm. the same thing that they yeah. did every year. And you really didn't have to. Somebody was asking me. We we did an interview with Garden and Gun, and they were trying to ask me to define what was special about it. I. Was like, I don't know, people just come in and they like it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just didn't Print it. That's the headline. I didn't even know if it would work or not. But right. people were just really happy to be in a place playing, you know, reasonably un, unobnoxious Christmas music mm-hmm. and with some sparkly lights and some sweet little cocktails to yeah. go
1: in there and I think there's an interesting narrative that hooks that up because now we're looking at um like when it comes down to it, it's all experiential dining experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what drove Tiki, in my opinion, was, you know, this escapism and this idea of like creating an environment that had the music, had the taste, the sounds, and everything that surrounded you. Now we're looking at these small, like micro concepts that are trying to achieve the exact same thing. And maybe it's a reflection of like what people's attention span is or what their expectation well, is. Well, like. t-
3: people have become, I mean, this is something you see in New York and Los Angeles. And this is why we never opened a bar in Los Angeles. People are. Novelty. Get to a point where things are comfortable everybody's going to go somewhere else
2: yeah I mean you talked about um, Steve you talked about a five year window for most places mm-hmm. LA back in even in the nineties was six months, you know, a place would have six months of total hotness where everybody wanted to go there. Yeah. And then when six months were up, okay, what's, what's new, you know, and, and the place, you know, there were people who would open up bars knowing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we got a shelf life here for about half a year and then we're going to open another one right, right after that.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that the thing that nobody is grasping onto right now, and, um, I am sure it's come up on this podcast before. I'm a big game person. Um, and the whole point of games is to create kind of like this experience with mechanics that like really, you know, involves the players and really, you know, that's once again, that experience that's developed as a, as it is too. Um, I don't understand why some of these bars aren't creating more of a game experience for their patrons, you know? It's like, you know, if you have – and I didn't make it to this Game of Thrones pop-up, and I am keep using it as an example. But if you have a Game of Thrones pop-up and you've got really great decor, why aren't you involving the customers when they come in as well, too? Because that's what people want. They don't want to see a Game of Thrones bar. They want to be in Game of Thrones, right? I think
2: they did that. I mean, I, I didn't get to go. Um, they're doing a Halloween thing that's very similar to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Derek Brown, all of his bars – um, JP and Angie Featherstone they they the photos i saw were very immersive and it looked like it was a very interactive experience yeah. when you went from room to room
1: yeah um. but it's like are you in this I, I also don't read or watch game of thrones so it's a bad example <laughs> <laughs> it's like are you like when you come in are you like given a house that you're in you know do you know like where's that point where you get to like play a character and stop being yourself i mean to me i think that's really where the forefront of bartending is going at this point too like when you can have people come in and like just really just forget who they are like and it's like almost like we have to go past just serving drinks or
3: like having decor well you know the, the, this is what again you know and people talk about talk about this endlessly and have been since it was first thought of this is what virtual reality will do eventually this is what You'll augmented be able, reality y- is, especially yes. with pokemon go and everything yes. right but that is the first step because you're going to be able to go into probably go into a bar in the future and have whatever experience that you want to have yeah is pod, which is that's pod
1: bar? He just yeah. go on a
3: pod and yeah. he just
1: knocks you out, and you wake up.
3: I mean, it's it's, it's interesting though. But, but you could run a theme bar like that. It's mm-hmm. sort of like okay, this year, the, we're a tiki bar now. We have this beautiful place, and you walk around and you see all the stuff, and it's like you're really just sitting on some ugly stool in an empty <laughs> room somewhere. But it, once yeah. you get the spatial stuff right, you don't necessarily have. So but, you put
0: on you put on your your yeah. Google Glass or whatever, yeah. and it just puts a patch over whatever Isn't blank first- screen. That you see, and it's it is whatever kind of bar you that want it to be. is,
2: isn't Virgin Airlines doing that now? I think they're doing that in their um, they're their doing first class like lounges.
0: That, yeah. yeah, virtual augmented reality bars. Yeah, well, I mean yeah. it was
2: some of the bars that won fifty best bars in that Drinks International thing. They Virgin contacted them and they recreated those bars in a VR kind of thing. You would Seems actually... like
1: they should do that for third class instead of first class it's like, <laughs> well, hey, you know
2: that really you're need, need it. Yeah. Need it. Yeah. <laughs> like,
1: here, you're not stuck next to that guy <laughs> snoring. Honey. We don't
2: need this in first class. Things are pretty good up here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Why are you paying for first class? Well, i got to get out of this really luxurious. Actually,
3: <laughs> I, it, it's just, you know, it, it is interesting. Like, we're standing on that lip where we're going to see where all of this will go and, you know, who will accept that because then it's like you can do that for six months you can have a virtual pop-up and then you can roll on to the next thing
1: it's exciting as well too because i think there's always that response to certain trends as well too because then like if that becomes if that is like where we're heading towards and these smaller experiences happen then that just reopens up to you know tiki and to like you know neighborhood bars like you know the wood, people are going to crave something real. Exactly, yeah. they want they want that real. It's like, look
0: at this place; this
3: oh, has been around for this like. Bartender
0: years. is human. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, absolutely no. I mean, absolutely, and you would be in one of these places with other real people. But the thing is, is that that's going to be very expensive. Mm. It's going to be. It's not going to be as expensive as renting a huge place or buying all of the stuff to put in a place and then changing it all the time. But it's still going to cost a lot. That's still like a lot of very complicated coding that? and everything. I'm sure. So the the people that are going to get displaced by this are you know big flashy nightclubs in Las Vegas mm-hmm. and other high dollar places. That's going to be much more of a problem for them because they won't be able to compete with it. Mm-hmm.
0: I remember seeing a, uh, a, a reproduction of an old newspaper article. This is in the Museum of the American Cocktail. I don't know if it transitioned to the uh, to the new location, but it was in the old location, and it had a description of the bar of the future. And it talked about how um, in the city of the future, everything's going to be skyscrapers and street level. Real estate is going to be at such a premium that no bar will be at ground level. Everything will be on, on the rooftop bars. In the way of the future, because that's where you'll Still be able is, to dock apparently. your zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. <And>
3: it, was, <laughs> it was very specific. That's um, uh, the steampunk. Of, so yeah, it, it felt very steampunk. <laughs> so we are
1: in the darkest timeline, is what you're we, Because everything is a rooftop bar where you park your zeppelin. We need to be zeppelin. We just cases. don't have zeppelins. That's that's a problem. Yeah. That's a big U- problem. Utopia is the zeppelin yeah. <laughs> reality.
0: But I, yeah, I don't know. We talk we I mean this augmented reality virtual reality. I don't I don't know that that works in a like one of the things one of the reasons that the service economy, the service industry is such a growing part of the American economy is because it's personal. Mm-hmm. Is because you get those human interactions. You can make robots build a car, and you can make robots do a lot of things, and you can make robots do more and more things that you would like. answer phone calls. There's a lot of things that robots can do now that we never really thought of them as being able to do before, but I don't know. I mean, I guess you could start a cocktail automat or something like that. Yeah,
3: people will always want their neighborhood places, yeah. and they'll always want personal service, and that will that will keep smaller places like our place, your place. Yeah, like Those will always have that. You
0: can't replicate that but in the, a virtual world. But the
3: barns, it's gonna be very interesting mm. to see what the these yeah. huge like nightclubs and like what that can but turn even, into even because nightclub you get a good
1: service it? in a nightclub though
3: yeah no yeah. you don't have personal service in those places you don't have already. personal
0: service but you do have a lot of meaningful human interaction
3: well you would still I mean you can still see other people in these things Fair. like okay. as themselves yeah. like that's what they're or that's whatever they, they
0: want to be seen. Yes, yes, exactly.
2: who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I mean I don't I don't think I'm competent to judge the success or failure of that kind of thing because when I go to the airport now and you see that all the restaurants in an airport have the iPad in front of you, and you're ordering off of that, and there's no human interaction at all, except somebody will bring it to you after you punched all the num, you know, all the all the items on the menu. That to me is just like soul death. It's just so dispiriting. I'll just, I w- I would, I would just. I love it. No, you I'm like sorry. it. I, I so love <laughs> well, see. That's the thing. Like. That's why I don't think I'm competent to judge because I will actually go to a newspaper stand and buy a sandwich from somebody then sit down and order off and an th- iPad. this is mm. not for our
3: generation or your generation this is for the ones it's for my generation suckers <laughs> <coming>. <laughs> not you either yeah. i'll still
1: I'll still benefit from it i'm okay
3: <laughs> yeah but it's like for me yeah again i'm with steve it's like i, I know what the realist uh, the, the realism is and the of doing business in an airport where you have to get security clearance for all your employees of course you would rather have 10 iPads than five other employees in there because it's so freaking expensive
1: from the service side too it's really crazy like I I can't believe the number of people like at Latitude we have mobile iPads that we that that all the servers use and um, it's it's a fantastic tool, and it actually makes a lot of sense to use, but it's so funny the pushback you'll hear from, like, other people who are in the industry as well. It's like, oh, it's just – it's not personable, and, like, you know, I don't know if like, I can get good service while somebody's using a screen. It's like the, the physical implications of using something like that is amazing. I mean, like, you haven't waited on a lot of you, – you haven't waited – Tables, no,
0: I've done a little bit here and there. So not, like one of the big problems regular. in
1: a restaurant is if you've got somebody with a five table section and they get set five tables, they're going to take five orders at one time and then put five orders in mm-hmm. at the same time. So it destroys the pacing inside the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But if you have an iPad and you take the order immediately when somebody sits down or like right, that there's no lag pace, time, there's no lag. But there's also a natural gap in between all of these orders. Right. So it's not like you get bombarded with five drink orders at one time. You get like one drink order in the next
2: drink order
0: in the next drink order really I, I'm surprised to hear that there's pushback against iPads being used by servers because there's pushback. a there's a very big difference I think between an iPad replacing a server and an iPad being implemented by a server
2: absolutely who cares what they're taking the order down with if yeah, there's, there's still a person iPad yeah. any
0: different I think there's a, a huge pad. perception thing
1: like, Yeah, what people don't if, understand yeah. what they're what happens if you walk into do you consider if you saw a, a server at a fine dining restaurant using an ipad would that detract from your service seriously no you, you don't think that would detract from your service because i think all. for most people they would say if they had somebody who was at their table using an ipad automatically it's a, it's less of a service experience
2: no i mean if, if they were if they had a pen and a pad and they were writing something down they would make less eye contact I with hate you it. than if they were just punching that, you know yeah. an item and
3: know. i hate it when people are forced to memorize orders because mm-hmm. it, you're basically setting up even the best server for failure.
0: Yeah. Although I, that I find the most like whether you're writing it down or you're putting it in yeah. digitally, I don't think there's a real big difference there. You're still making a record of it. I find it very impressive, though, when a server can has, has that, and it's very rare, and I don't expect it even in oh, the okay. finest restaurants. But when a server can take an order perfectly for a large table without writing it or. Doing anything to to aid their memory at all, and then just perp- and it comes out perfectly. That's one of the greatest service experiences. But I mean,
3: I grew up in, in a time when I was working in restaurants when it was either you were writing it on down with a pen or you had to memorize it, mm. and. Again, even the best people would fail spectacularly on almost a daily basis, <laughs> I mean, depending on the volume of the place. It, w- it was just, you know, and then also people misremember what they said to you, and it's a little easier when they see you mm, taking it down in front of them. They have less doubt about right. the fact that...
2: There they, are less, can I speak to your manager moments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I would say from I think this
1: this might be the wrong group to talk to this about, but I, I think if you guys wanted to talk to other people about it, it's there's there's a surprising image issue with like bringing that amount of technology
0: to the table. Yeah, like people just don't think that. Do it's, you think maybe it's because it's a tiki bar and because that's it's such not, a it's, throwback it's, concept? Well, to most a of, most of
1: this comes from the last place I was at. When I was oh. there, like I was pushing very much for because it was a very sp- big restaurant that had like a lot of things it's like okay well it's a small kitchen they need to get orders in at the right time there's not a lot of POS systems it's like we need mobile capabilities and I got huge pushbacks from our consultant as well as the other managers there and then the hotel as well saying like you know we can't do that that looks unprofessional huh. like, and it's going to take away from the environment
3: the main reason again that we do this besides you know the the first the first thing actually is that it does speed up service but it also gives the server more time at the table. Yep. They, Our servers will spend a lot of time talking to their tables, and they don't feel like they have to run off every second because they know how mm-hmm. to work with the technology to keep them on the floor. They're not running over to something in the corner mm-hmm. and poking at it when 10 other people are trying to do that. Yeah. There was
2: a, not to bring everything back to Tiki all the time, but, um, but that's the when way your old, brain um, works. This- uh, one old um, waiter told me that when he worked at Don Beachcombers in Palm Springs was a lot of celebrities used to go to Sinatra Kirk Douglas all those people um, they did that they would memorize the order they would not write anything down but what they did was instead of crossing all the way over to the kitchen to give the order there would be um Either a potted plant or a tiki with a microphone in it, and they would, they, would, they would go over to it, like in the middle of the dining room, and talk into the tiki or into the potted plant, and just deliver the whole order. You know,
1: three navy rocks, two scorpions, whatever.
2: And um, and and what he said to me was like, yeah. That's a lost arc. I mean imagine trying to look cool and do that.
0: <laughs> I think to, <laughs> relaying your order to a giant effigy.
3: Yeah. So like, yeah. That would
0: just enhance the experience. Yeah,
3: right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we can't be that cool.
1: (laughs) I mean, I could just walk over to one of our tiki's and just talk out loud. I mean,
3: bring bring it back, right? Steve's talking to the tiki again! (laughs) Somebody go get him! Three cheeseburgers! (laughs) 800 cheeseburgers.
1: (laughs) Alrighty, y'all. Well, we're getting right about to the end of the show here. It's been a great conversation so far um we here at around a stephen cole we be me and cole <laughs> like to wrap things up here uh with a little segment we call parting shots just your opportunity to say who you are again uh where we can find you what projects might be coming up uh things to look forward to and any final thoughts you might have so let's go ahead and start off with mr barry here
2: yeah um jeff Beachbum barry uh, to reintroduce myself um You'll find me at Latitude, usually Friday and Saturday nights, um, uh, unless I know you're coming in on another night, and then I'll come meet you. Um, the project I'm working on now, while well, it's done, while well, I'm just waiting for it to come out, is a 10-year anniversary edition of Sip and Safari, which came out in 07 when there was no craft cocktail tiki revival at all, and I never saw one coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so ten years later, it was nice to revisit the book and to include an um, an afterward talking about what happened in the ten years after um, and I interviewed a lot of the uh, owners and bartenders of some of these places in Europe and the states and got recipes from them and talked about how the book may or may not have influenced them and that's, that's it was a pretty cool thing so um so that's coming out I hope October, November. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool, excellent. And uh, what separates uh, Seven Safari from the other books you've written?
2: Oh well, the main thing about it was the other books were all recipe books. Um, I was very single-minded. All I wanted to know was how to make these drinks, and I wanted to know what went in them. And of course, nothing was written down. It was they were was, was, was top secret, um, you know, very valuable secrets to have, and nobody published them. So when I finally got a hold of some of these things. Um, I was kind of single-minded and obsessed, and the people who gave me their recipe books were, you know, seventy, eighty-year-old guys or their fa- or their descendants, in some cases, who told me these amazing stories about being a teenage guerrilla fighter in the Philippines during the war before they be- start working a Tiki bar. Or like driving Ava Gardner home after she had been had one too many at Don the Beachcombers. And the whole time I was going, yeah, uh-huh, uh uh-huh, right, yeah, sure, what, what's in a cobra's fang? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, but and gradually it began to dawn on me and penetrate my thick skull that the stories were actually more interesting than the recipe. So Simpsons Safari was the first book I wrote that actually has a real narrative text in it and it tells the stories of the people behind the drinks and the recipes appear in sidebars and that became the template for everything I've done since I mean Potions the Caribbean same deal um, and uh, the 10 year version of Sippin is even more of the same and now I'm just talking to uh, telling the stories of the people who have been doing it since 07 up to 2017 cool excellent all right Anine, what you got for us
3: I am Mrs. Bum
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well I want to talk about Sippin a little bit too I think it was like really it's so important that this is coming out again because not only are you capturing this little piece of history that was like slipping away very rapidly, even when you first started recording it, but it was a chance to give credit to all these bartenders who were the behind the scenes people like this huge literally behind the scenes with yeah. Tiki as well because yes. a lot of the bars Hidden behind a wall like service a bars, yeah, in yeah. yeah. service bars. And you know, some of the people we met who were, you know, again, like all these wonderful, like just wonderful people that sort of had made their lives much more interesting even after this. Like there was, you know, actors and people who went into their own businesses and yeah, I um, mean, it, I'm really, I'm really excited that he's doing this and it, it's, it's going back to that thing that like Bart, you know, it's a great book for bartenders to read.
1: Essential. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd say, honestly, it's about bartenders.
2: And mean yeah. I mean, shot some great drink porn for it some really nice drink pictures
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I always get to participate a little bit on that so and we're we're doing you know we're going to be out there like traveling a lot more this year because uh, thanks to certain people Including the present company, uh, Cole, we have thanks, buddy. <laughs> we have we have a restaurant that's running very well, and we're very grateful for that.
2: Um, thank you, Steve.
3: Thank you, Steve and Brad.
1: Yeah. Ready to open a new one, right?
3: Uh, well, <laughs> we can talk about that next podcast. All okay.
0: right.
3: Yeah. Um. I th- I, for my parting shot,
0: I guess I, I have a very specific relationship with this. The type of um the type of xenophobia that people kind of think of when they think of the New Orleans culture that people are like very very wary of outsiders and i think i had i, I my into that is that i came at a very at a time right after the storm where outsiders were welcome for a very very limited period of time and Uh, But I always try to articulate to people that New Orleans has a reputation for being xenophobic, but it's very welcome to people who are willing to embrace it for what it is. Some of the most iconic New Orleanian characters that your Tennessee Williams to your Drew Brees are, are not from here, but they're so very deeply ingrained with the identity of the city. And you guys coming here and embracing the city for what it is, loving it for what it is, and then creating something that I think will be I mean, I'm sure it aspires to be an iconic New Orleans landmark for decades to come. I think that's the kind of outsiders that New Orleanians have always embraced. And I I hope that that has been your experience here, that you have been
2: embraced in that way. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for the kind words, Cole. That's really cool to hear. Yeah.
3: I mean, this is... uh, I can't think of a better place to do business, really. I don't, you know... And I I 100% (laughs) agree with you. It's, It's been a very supportive... Accepting community. It's a place where I can call, you know, any of the people that I work with to help make the restaurant run. I know the guy who changes the dishwashing stuff, and he, I can call him by his first name. I has, have his cell phone number. Like that doesn't happen in a lot of places, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I, I just find like it, it just that hasn't changed at all. Like a lot of things have changed about the city since we moved here, but. The kindness of people and their willingness to, to you well, that, know, go yeah, the distance—that uh, that is the, a constant.
2: That was the main thing in those first three days that we came here in 05 from Los Angeles. I spent my whole life in Los Angeles, where it's not enough for you to succeed; your best friend has to fail. That's kind of the ethos. <laughs> and and here it's like you know no, everybody wants you to do well. Everybody wants you to to succeed. And rising tide lifts all boats. And and that that genuineness. I mean, there's nothing fake about it. That's that was like an overwhelming thing to experience when we um, first came here
3: yeah the culture the culture it, you know even without any of the earmarks that people always think of the culture as it's a place where you recommend your other people's restaurants to your patrons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know and people from certain places are shocked by that <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: well, why? <laughs> uh, Steve, you got any parting shots for us? Um, No, that
1: pretty much summed up everything I really wanted to say. It's kind of uh, interesting. I do want to note that this episode, I'm surrounded by all my bosses. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody I work for is right now at this podcast. So. I think I minded my P's and Q's pretty well. You
2: walked on those eggshells for a solid hour.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's me. Walk on eggshells, Stevie Mana. That's really cool, All Alrighty, y'all. I think that's going to wrap it up here. This has been another round with Stephen Cole. Uh, I'm Stevie Mana.
0: I'm T. Cole Newton. And we'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks for joining us. music for A Round with Stephen
1: Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for A Round with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. I
2: can tell by your body You've always been a hottie I really want to know